1: Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to journalists, experts, and long time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society, and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? China's population is aging. It's estimated that a quarter of Chinese people will be elderly within three decades. The relaxing of its one-child policy, first to two children in 2016 and then to three last year, hasn't stimulated fertility rate, which is still stagnant at 1.7 births per woman. In November last year, it's reported that nappy producers pivoted their marketing towards elderly clients instead of parents of babies. Demographers and economists warn about the problems that an ageing and eventually shrinking population will cause in China and elsewhere. But in this conversation, China also faces an additional political dimension, which is that birth rates have been tightly and artificially controlled for so many decades. With me to discuss just how serious the problem is, the memory of the one-child policy, and what the Chinese government should do now, is a demographer, Wang Feng, professor of sociology at University of California, Irvine. I started by asking him just how fast and how much China's population is ageing.
0: Well, China's population is ageing and it's ageing in an accelerating rate. So if we use the international standard of age 65 and above, not 60 as it's been used in China, at the beginning of China's reforms in the late 1970s, early 80s, Less than 5% of the population was above that age range. And the latest census in 2020 gave the share at about 12%. So we're seeing this more than doubling in the last 30, 40 years. More, I think, important is uh, what's going to happen next. So the SD projection right now is uh, in the next 30 years, the share of the elderly population in China could reach to 30% or even higher. So roughly by mid-century, less than 30 years from now, one in three of persons in China would be aged 65 and over. So that's a very, very serious population aging. Aging is accelerating because birth rate has been very low and for a while. So since the early 1990s, uh, the measure demographers use, which is called the total fertility rate, that's the number of children a woman or couple is expected to have in her lifetime, dropped below two. So we know that we need, for each couple, you need more than two to replace themselves. So China has had Mm -hmm. three decades of what's called below replacement fertility, and that effect, is going to show up in the decades to come.
1: That's fascinating. So does that mean that in the next few years, the population will also start to shrink?
0: I think China has already quietly passed a milestone, demographic milestone. Last year, we just heard the report, saw the report earlier this year. Last year, China had added only less than half a million people out of a population of more than 1.4 billion. So half million is almost negligible, give or take. That's, to me, it's almost already like zero. With any enumeration errors, you could get more than half million. So it's very likely China already passed its population growth peak. And so what's going to happen we're going to see, whether it's last year or this year or next year, is the beginning of a continued shrinking of the population. This is a big deal. This this is the largest population in the world. It's going to get smaller and smaller. And uh, for China, it's always one of the titles China has always had is the largest national population in the world. And that's Still going to be the case for a few years, but China is going to give up that title to India pretty soon. And Cindy, the decline could be pretty serious if China continues with its current growth rate, which is going to turn into negative, its population by the end of this century. And many people who are alive now could see this. By the end of the century, the size of the population could be... 40% smaller. So we're looking at a population that's going to be way below 1 billion or substantially below 1 billion. And you'll be looking at a population that has 30 to 40% who are over age 65. That's, so that's a very different population.
1: That That's really incredible. So I guess we're talking about two different problems here, which are interrelated, So in the medium term, am I right in thinking that there's a problem posed by aging population, the changing of demographics within society, and then in a slightly longer term, is that shrinking population that you're talking about? Can we talk about the different impacts that they will have?
0: Right. We have to say, looking back in the last century, the world population more than tripled from about 20 billion at the beginning of the 20th century to, I think, close to 7 billion. So it doesn't mean that we have to stay at that peak, I think the world population right now, the projection is is going to, to peak at around 9 billion because some countries are still growing and we expect to see more growth, especially in Africa. So it doesn't mean that China has to, you know, because China has 1.4 billion, it has to keep at 1.4 billion. But there are several important aspects to consider not only looking at China, but also other countries. So, for instance, right now, in terms of the state, the power, a lot of this power comes from the size. So, for instance, the Chinese economy, in terms of size, could already be larger than the US, but uh, per capita income, it's still well below. But the US population is expected to grow. It is still growing, both because of a higher birth rate and and the immigration. So I'm not here to fan this rivalry between China and the United States. I think that's way overblown and uh, misplaced. But you have to look at, if you have to compare the countries, so by the end of this century, or even in 50 years, the contrast would be quite different. So population size. while there is no argument that China has to stay at this large size. Does matter in terms of the total size of the economy, and you, know, you can think of other aspects as well. But I do think the structure or the age structure is a more important factor. So that's the second dimension, that you want to look at. So it's not just whether the population is bigger or smaller psychologically that would have an effect. I mean, Japan has had a decline for some time, and uh, Russia, Germany, but it's how fast. I think in the case of China, the the decline, the shrinking, shrinkage will happen faster, and the increase in elderly population would be faster, and those would really have a much larger impact on the standard of living, on almost every aspect for the people who live in China. So that's going to have more of an impact. So it's it's not just size, it's how fast it changes and in what direction.
1: Mm. Can we illustrate some of that? So I guess one thing that comes to mind is with an aging population, you have fewer people who are productive in the economy, more people who are above retirement age, and then presumably that would change the distribution of welfare state, of savings and all that sort of stuff. What are some of the specific problems that might come from an aging population?
0: Well, there, there are two... Aspect to this, uh, Cindy, the aging population, its effect on the economy, on the society in general, I would say there are more unknowns than knowns. And because this is the first time the world has faced such a sweeping demographic change and certainly the first time for China. But we can think of some examples to anticipate this. In terms of the effect on the economy, we all learned the the predicament of Evergrande, mm-hmm. the real estate giant. There are multiple forces leading to the problems the company had, including the you know the the credit uh, it was receiving and the pandemic. But underlying that is a demographic explanation. So. The number of births in China dropped, annual number dropped from about 20, over 25 million in the late 1980s to only about 10 million last year. So, what this means is that if you think everybody gets married, so you're looking at a change from over 12 million couples to 5 million couples. So, every year assuming they all get married when they grow up, and then they buy uh, apartments or they have a need to buy apartments. Mm -hmm. So you have, on the one hand, uh, such a shrinkage. It's more than 50% decline in the new couples who want to buy uh, apartments. And at the same time, you have the elderly population who have real estate, and uh, they are starting to give up their apartments as they die. So this is just one example how, compounded with other factors, you can have this this sector of the economy that could be affected by the changes in demographics in population. Now, but still we don't know all the answers, like what China's only child generation, how would they be able to deal with both supporting their elderly parents who need at least logistic support and also shouldering uh, work and then raising their only children. So that's only a story we we're seeing in the beginning. Mm. So there are a lot of unknowns. We don't know about the economy and about the society, but we, one thing we do know is that the elderly population, their healthcare, their pension needs, would need to be met. And here's the uh, number I think that's uh, interesting. That is in the last 15 years or so, uh, since around 2015, around that time, the share of government spending on these social benefits as the country's economic output, right? So the China's economy is growing and its spending is all growing. So you look at the percentage so the percentage of government spending on these social benefits increased three times, so to about 10% of the GDP now. Wow. That's expected to grow even without increasing the level of the benefits. And uh, we all know the pension and the healthcare situation is highly fragmented, unequal in China. Some are receiving decent or good pension, while for the majority of the population, the ones who were enrolled into a pension system from the countryside or urban non-working people, the payment they receive, it's very minimal. And so even assuming no increase in the benefit level, we are going to see a continued increase of... uh, Mandated government spending on these expenditures. So uh, that is going to raise a political challenge for the state, whether, I, I think we've heard discussion on property tax, whether they're going to impose property tax, how? And as, again, if we get back to Evergrande, as the housing sector cools down and the local governments a lot of them used to rely on the revenue from selling land. Mm-hmm. That revenue is drying up as well. So the government will be in a very difficult position to think how to increase revenue to pay for this inevitable increase in social benefits for the elderly population.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. Just briefly, you mentioned this fragmentation of pension schemes and other social welfare schemes. Is that because of regional governments? So there's a bit of a, a postcode lottery going on, depending on where you live, what government you're being governed under.
0: That's certainly one of the major dimensions you see. I mean, the benefit level from Zhejiang, Jiangsu, Shanghai, um, much higher than, like, say, in Shaanxi or Gansu. So you have mm-hmm. the provincial the difference across provinces, and even across different regions, but also there's a larger divide. That is between the population who used to be urban, have the uh, urban hukou, and then the majority of the people who actually build China, the people from China's countryside, the migrants. So for them, their benefit level, is way, way below what is received by so-called urban population. So you have yeah. that fragmentation as well.
1: Yeah, hukou is something that came up on a previous episode that I did about common prosperity, gong tong And in that context, you know, I was discussing about whether or not the government was serious about having this common prosperity agenda. And my guest, George Magnus, was saying that actually, because of the existence of household registration still, and this is a system for listeners, if you remember, it's a way of preventing overflow of urbanisation so that if you're someone who's registered to a city, you get access to certain welfare schemes and healthcare and public services in a way that out of towners don't. And, you know, George Magnus was saying that this shows that the government is not so serious about common prosperity just yet, because they're not reforming that system, Jesse. They're not reforming that system to get the poorest Chinese people you know, access to these beneficial schemes. What do you make of that? I would
0: agree with that. I think the Commonwealth is a desirable political slogan. And to achieve that really requires a serious work. And one of them is with hukou reform. Now, China has made a great Stride in urbanization and in uh, Hukou reforms. And so now people can, I mean, for small cities, for medium sized cities, people can have a local Hukou. But for large cities, you know, Beijing, Shanghai, Shenzhen, or uh, even Hangzhou, or these big cities, getting a Hukou to be there, to be a local resident, well, it's basically off the limit. It's really hard. So Mm. what's hard here, uh, Cindy, is not what's written on Hukou. It's not a piece of paper. This is the hard thing. If you are the mayor in Shanghai, you have to think, where do I get the resources to pay for all the people who want to come to Shanghai? Mm -hmm. We're talking about a physical uh, system, social benefit system. So China does not have a I would say China has already missed the time window for establishing a equitable national social security system. So the, the, the system in China is not national. Mm. They have national policies, but it's really not national. And I don't think China, given the recent drastic decline in government revenue and you know, company economic slowing down, I doubt the government still has the physical ability to implement an equitable national security, social security system, because you cannot have a system by lowering others' benefit. Mm. You can only do this by increasing the benefit for the majority of the population. We're talking about a pension difference of 9 to 1, the ratio. It used to be 50 to 1. So um, how do you have the money to raise that? And given, I think, 80% of the spending is local, from local government, that is going to be the hard thing. So I think instead of talking about commonwealth, which is easy to talk about, (laughs) if policymakers are serious, they need to figure out a way to ramp up a national healthcare system or a national pension system. Right now, they have these, but the benefits, as I said earlier, is highly fragmented.
1: Mm-hmm. And just going back to the problems of ageing, Wang form. so we talked about some of the negatives, but you say that there are still a lot of questions. Do you think one of the questions that we haven't got an answer for just yet is just how bad it would be in terms of the workforce, by which I mean, we're seeing China becoming more and more automated. You've hinted at the fact that the population is getting a bit more healthy, a bit more educated. So in the future, does it matter as much as we currently think it does to have an all Older population who are also smaller in size? Maybe it doesn't matter so much.
0: It's, it's again, it's, it's the ratio. There are certain things that uh, automation can certainly help. I think uh, I used to remember it was so hard for elderly person to get a taxi. Mm-hmm. They used to stand on the side of the street and waiting <laughs> to to cabs coming by. But now they could use an app. Not all elderly could use app, DD Chuxing. But many can, and so that, you know, digital payment—that's just one example—has really made lives for elderly people a lot easier. You know, people can order food. But there are certain things that uh, still would not be able to be helped by these uh, technology, the AI, and the online shopping. Loneliness is something that's really—it's been shown to be. Uh, a very important factor for health, for mental health, and then physical health, they're related. So I think it's actually clear that the technology we, so, we know so far cannot help replace human interaction. And mm-hmm. again, we need to be mindful that China is aging with its own characteristics. One of them is a large share of the families' elderly will grow old, with only one child.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So then, one Feng, you know, in the West, there's often, you know, talk about how big of a problem the ageing population is, especially in terms of economic perspective. For China, which is a country that a lot of analysts say that still hasn't quite cleared the middle income trap, do you think that this problem is enough to essentially stop it on its path to growth and to mean that it can never pass that hurdle?
0: Well, it's it's debatable how useful this uh, middle income threshold, uh, the status, is useful okay. for uh, China, and some Chinese academics are already reporting that China has passed that uh, threshold. Mm-hmm. And uh, also, I think what's really meaningful here is that in the, in the last 30, 40 years, we have seen such a large segment of the world population has changed, their, improved their standard of living and really changed the whole world with a change in China. But at the same time, you still have a large share of the population with a very modest income level. Uh, this is admitted by uh, the Chinese Prime Minister, Li Keqiang and others. I think you've seen saying how like 600 million people in China are still living under you know a couple thousand RMB per year. So China has not, uh, regardless whether the per capita income would be in the upper high income society rank or not, the fact is that we know China still has a lot of, pop- the majority of China's population are perhaps living in what they call a xiaokang. just you Kang, know, just starting to have basic comforts in life, and here we come back to the aging population. So when people age, you're going to have more needs for health care, and also people need to have means for supporting their livelihood. So whether the government would be able to provide that. You know, if we think of what happened globally after the financial crisis in 2008, 2007, there were so many protests, especially in Europe, and most of them were related to cuts in benefits, right? I forgot how many governments Greece mm-hmm. went through, right? But China does not have that option. China does not have the option of just throwing away a government as a way to quell the public dissatisfaction. So when that comes, it's going to be really a, a hard position, I think, for the government who enforced a one-child policy for 35 years and created so many families with only one child and made promises to provide all age support. So if that promise cannot be delivered, it would have political consequences.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, let's talk about the one-child policy then, because when they introduced it in 1980, do you think that they foresaw these problems? Because it was surely obvious then what replacement rate for the population would be. If you keep up this policy for so many decades, as you've described, then you will have so many people being below replacement rate. Um, So do they foresee that problem?
0: They did, to some extent. They did foresee... There will be aging uh, issue, and they did foresee there will be labor force uh, shortage. But it's very typical mentality of the planners. Well, one is they kick the can down the road. They (laughs) said explicitly, they said in 35 years, our economy would be much better because of the sacrifices we paid. Then we can do X, Y, and Z. And the other is, this is the the drama, well, not quite drama we're seeing right now. The planners think that population, having children, fertility is like a uh, water tap. They can Mm. turn it off and they can turn it on. So I think 30, I'm just guessing 40 years ago, they probably had a lot of confidence that they know they could raise fertility. They think that, Mm. they think, the desire for having babies is like water rushing out. And the only way to regulate is through the hands of planners. You turn it off and they turn it on. And now we are seeing, this is the thing we've been discussing for a long time, especially after ending of the one-child policy seven, six years ago, we're not seeing the water flowing out of the tap. So that's something I think the policymakers did not anticipate, and uh, they did not anticipate the seriousness of imbalance in sex ratio. They certainly did not expect that over 100,000 of babies, Chinese girls, would be adopted overseas. So there are things that they did not expect, but they did expect aging and the labor force change.
1: That, that's fascinating. And I'd love to, uh, we'll definitely talk a little bit more about that water tap and why it's getting stuck later on. Just staying on the one-child policy, it's it's obviously completely notorious from where we're talking, you're in California, I'm, I'm in the UK. But just leaving aside those political problems with liberty for now, did it make sense from a demographic perspective? Because at the time, as I understand it, Chinese women's fertility was about five per woman in the 70s. And that was the reason people thought that there was food shortages or the country's resources couldn't keep up enough. But is that the reason or was it just because of other things, such as the lack of economic growth from trying to practice communism? Did they really target the right policy area in having a one-child policy?
0: It was definitely a policy that was not just not making demographic sense. It was not making any common human sense. Let me, let me be specific on this. So by the time the one-child policy was launched nationwide, fertility in China already dropped more than 50% from uh, what he was saying over five births per uh, woman in the early beginning of the 1970s to slightly over two by the end of the 1970s, so before the, uh, the one-child policy was pushed out. The problem was really with a planned economy because the government was worried about the large number of young people born after the great leap famine in the early 1960s they were coming of age in the 1980s and they would not only need a lot of jobs but also they would become parents so if you do not constrain the the number of of birth they could have you're going have this you know uh, echo you're gonna have a lot of birth. so they were anticipating that as well. but ultimately as we look back now it is the problem of the economic system, it's not the population because right now all the concerns are not enough people to work yeah. but at that time all the worry was the planned economy was not able to provide. Anything from food to school, uh, tables and chairs to textbooks and to jobs and to housing. Right now, you see this being turned around totally uh, heads down, right? Population is no longer a, a constraint. It's a resource. So that's not making the economic sense, but it's not making human sense. Think about a family. Having two children seem to be so normal. And so the one-child policy was really so extreme without thinking of like the the common sense, the human common sense. And to think families was not important, Mm -hmm. parents' children were not important, and you can just plant them and constrain them as you were growing trees or uh, wheat. So I think history will go back to ask these questions Again and again, how could the policymakers went that far to be so lack of basic human sense in coming up with such a extreme policy only for the goal of growing the economy, which itself was misunderstood. And yeah. uh, so, I think this is a question that's going to go back. I hope people will write the history because. We don't have time to probably to uh, get into this now, Cindy, politics played a very important role. The one-child policy was not uniformly accepted or welcomed among the party top leadership and
1: well actually one thing I do want to get into that because that that was actually going to be my next question it's such a drastic policy especially for a society which values children so much values passing down the family name so much i did want to ask you you know well, what was the internal party discussion like who were the people against it and you know if you say the fertility rate had already been falling was it because they were economic planners that they didn't react fast enough to the changing demographics already
0: Okay, so just put this very briefly. (laughs) One is that now we actually, through some scholars' work, on the background of that infamous or famous letter in September 1980, to call for party members and the members of the Communist Youth League to have only one child. That letter was not a call to implement policy, but was instructed to write the letter to explain to people not why we have to make the sacrifice. So in other words, there was a sense of embarrassment and at least awareness of the extremeness of the policy. And uh, for people who study policy change, and in the 1980s, they would know that the person who led the sterilization and abortion campaign in China after the one-child policy in 1983, the person who was re- awarded the United Nations Population Fund Award was uh, the Ministry of Health, was dismissed the year after in 1984. And 84, 86, the party came out with the policies of what's called opening holes, allowing rural population to have two children if the first one is a, is a boy. So they were making compromises. And mm-hmm. had there not been the political changes with the dismissal of the party secretaries, first Hu Yaobang and then Zhao Ziyang, they were both skeptical of the policy. The one-child policy may not have lasted for that long. So that's Mm -hmm. just a brief version of how politics, real-life politics, affected the fate of the one-child policy.
1: What about in the 90s then? Because, you know, I understand that period of political turmoil is, you know, this battle between the Conservatives and the Liberals in the party. But in the 90s, in the early noughties, you know, when reform and openings really opening up, why did it take them so long to change the one-child policy to a two-child policy, which was only happening in 2016, if I remember correctly?
0: It's a long story. I'll make it very uh, brief. It's not going to be helpful for people who (laughs) listen to this. I think you can see the after the dismissal of Zhao Ziyang and the people who were against him came to power and also everything that they stood for would be put on hold, right? Also, uh, the State Population Family Planning Commission by then became a much more larger organization with half a million people kind of involved nationwide for this business. And I would also have to say, that the leaders who came after them, especially Wen Jiabao, Hu Jintao, and uh, Li Keqiang, they were the people who grew up, like myself. At the end of the Cultural Revolution, I mean, they their knowledge of population was all learned from the time when China implemented the one-child policy that is in the late 1970s, early 80s, There was so much propaganda Mm. about how population would be the root of all problems for China. And I think that generation of leaders were deeply intoxicated by these teaching and then the public as well. So it Mm. it took time against the resistance of the vested interest, vested bureaucracies, and also to change the public perception, because it's really hard think about this, Cindy, to tell people that China has a population problem while the population was still growing. Yeah. And right. a while 40, 30, 40 years ago, population was widely blamed to be the, the root of all China's problems. It took a while. So it's a long story, but uh, I think it's probably a, uh, a different topic. Anyway, so. Sure.
1: And let's talk about the young people now then, because as you as you say, they're not having children. They're not this tap that you can just turn on and off. And there's a, there's a story that I covered last year when they changed the two-child policy to the three-child policy. But I was having a look on social media at that time, and people, instead of saying, oh, great, now we can have three children, it was full of young people saying, how do you expect us to be able to afford three children you know how do you expect us to be able to afford this, given house prices given education prices which in china of course includes extracurricular tuition for middle-class parents so do you think that the three-child release from the two-child one is going to have much impact
0: i don't think so i you know we have seen what happened with the, you know if people are not even having rushing to have a second child why would they have the third child <laughs> so you you probably have seen the ridicule uh, in the social media Young people saying, oh no, great, I have a quota to buy a Maserati, but I'm not using it. Right. <laughs> so that's that's what's what's happening. And I think we have to look around uh China to look at other fast growing economies in the past. Look at Japan, look at South Korea, look at Hong Kong and look at Taiwan, or even Singapore. I think two things, uh, two factors, will uh, play into the at least short-term future of marriages and childbearing in China. One is, as you said, you know, the, the cost of of having children is so high with education and with housing, with you know, everything else, childcare. And the one explanation scholars have put up is fertility is so low because. Parents in these societies are too responsible for Mm. their children. So the most responsible way is not to have more than one or even not have children, because you want your children to succeed. And this is not a culture that's equally shared in other societies necessarily. That is your children have to do better than yourself. So the sense of mobility and uh, strong family tradition, uh, parental responsibility, is a cultural force that's driving this. And that's not going away quickly. And the other one is, I think China is a latecomer, which is the fast-growing economy really raised the expectation of young people. And so when the economy started to, slow down, the growth starts to slow down, like in Japan, like in Taiwan, the sense of, of disappointment, not despair, but um, concern is greater. So yeah. you know, people compare with, they have this kind of expectation of life would continue to improve as in the past, but uh, what they see is actually stagnation. So uh, that expectation gap is going to have a further impact. On young people's decision of whether to get married and whether to have children.
1: Yeah, definitely. And it's so fascinating that on your first point, you know, I think Chinese family structure is so different to what we understand, in, in certainly in the West, which is that, you know, I think one example I can think of is my family being so shocked that my neighbor was charging her son rent to live at her home (laughs) which is something that's pretty unheard of I think in Chinese family life because even when your child gets to the age of 18 and beyond they're still your child and you're still meant to pay your parents you know filial piety so that family structure is completely different.
0: Absolutely the family is the organization the family is the unit and there are multiple cross-generation bounds and responsibilities and that's the way That people, not just in China, in many societies, have lived for thousands of years. That's the fundamental fabric of the society. Not every culture has the same understanding and the same arrangement, preferences.
1: Yeah, and it's most basic is that the atom of Chinese society is the family, not the individual, whereas I would say the atom of the Western society is the individual.
0: Right. um, Mm -hmm. In
1: a cultural sense. So, Wang Feng, what about immigration then? It's it's a method that Japan doesn't seem to have taken on in terms of solving its ageing population problem. Do you think China would be similarly rejecting immigration as a way forward?
0: Well, China is, it has shown its preferences, and uh, look at the latest immigrant China has had, Aileen Gu. So I think China will have immigration, but only if you can get Olympic medals. Uh, <laughs> no, seriously, you know, for a smaller country, even for a smaller country, like in the UK. UK is, you know, has this long history of being a colonizing empire, and it has dealt with this quite well and you have tensions, but UK is the exception. Look at the other countries in Europe. Even smaller countries, when you have immigrants, immigration come in, and they come with culture, with family, with a lot of uh, social background, and they are creating shocks in all these societies. Mm -hmm. But for China, it's different because it's, its size is so large. And China is more homogeneous, ethnically than culturally than the countries we are looking at, you know, be the Netherlands or Germany or uh, Belgium or France. And uh, so I think demographically it's unlikely to help. And culturally, at least we're looking at now, I don't see how, given the direction China is going in these days with the nationalism and, you know, this ethnic superiority, the sense that's being kind of bred I don't see how uh, China could even consider having immigration as one of the measures, again, with the exception of Aileen Gu, the type of Aileen Gu.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Wang Feng, then, finally, if you were sitting in Zhongna Hai in Beijing, what would you recommend? What would you tell policymakers to be looking at, then, if, if immigration is not the top choice and if the three-child policy isn't having an impact?
0: Well, the solution cannot be found in uh, demographics. I think aging society is not something that China or any other country can reverse. We've seen decades of studies of countries across the world. No country has been able to raise fertility in a sustained way. None. Regardless what you pay, what do you do? So I think the way to do is to adapt. So for China to adapt or just get ready for the aging society, there are many things that China has not been doing. People are calling for reforms. we just give you three examples. The Chinese healthcare system is costly, not equitable, and not widely accessible. Anybody who have reported on Chinese healthcare know how the resources are used so inefficiently that like people all rush into these Top ranked hospitals and then the primary care systems are not well used. And uh, so, what about reforming the healthcare system to make mm-hmm. it uh, more accessible, more equitable, less costly? And you look at the Chinese housing market, people are, I mean, the market is going, the price is so high, has gone so much. There are many reasons for this. One of them is people have no other ways of investing their newly earned wealth. So what about reforming the physical system, the financial uh, sector, and to make, to make more options available for Chinese citizens to invest, to increase their uh, wealth, to prepare for their own elderly you know, life? Look at Japan. Japan's GDP has been not growing, but its GMP, its global the size of the economy has been growing. So Japanese have a lot of investment overseas. Same thing with people in Singapore, in Hong Kong, in South Korea, in Japan. Well, Japan. So Chinese citizens do not have that. Most of them, or of them, most do not have that opportunities. So what about reforming the financial system? Right. The list can go on. What about and you know, people talk about hukou reforms in that area could increase population mobility, and uh, make families easier to support the elderly. For instance, if you are from outside of Shanghai, if you want to bring your parents in, if even buy housing, you cannot do that, right? So there are many things that are not in the sphere of demography that China can certainly do, but none of them is easy.
1: Mm. Fascinating. Thank you so much, Professor Wong Fong. Thank you for joining Chinese Whispers.
0: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel, remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well. If you just search Chinese Whispers wherever you get your podcast from, you will always get the latest episode first there.